This is an ABC podcast. Heartbreak from the air, the river city swamped. Ferry terminals all but destroyed. As the Brisbane River rose, the strong current swept debris downstream. Holy, holy. In the suburbs, it's an unmitigated disaster. It might be famously flood prone, but nobody in Lismore predicted this. What is normally a busy road became a nautical highway as people in boats answered frantic calls from those who were stranded, many having scrambled onto their roofs. Two metres higher than we were expecting and it just rose so fast. These guys were our neighbours, they saved our lives. The floods that swept through Queensland and New South Wales this month are just the most recent in a long line of natural disasters. Floods, fires, cyclones, Australia has them all. And with the impact of climate uncertainty becoming a reality, natural disasters are only going to get worse and occur more frequently. Therefore, how we as a community and our governments respond to these disasters is critical. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and in this Rear Vision, we're going to look back at how we responded to one of Australia's worst natural disasters, Cyclone Tracy. Darwin was a city, but it is no more. The heart and soul of Darwin has been torn out, and all that remains is a scene of utter devastation. Cyclone Tracy hit the city of Darwin in the early morning on Christmas Day, 1974. I flew into Darwin this afternoon, and from the air, it looked as though a giant hand had grabbed up the city and smashed it to a pulp. Cyclone Tracy was probably considered one of the the worst disasters that Australia had had to that time. Not necessarily because it was the strongest, though the wind speed recorded during Cyclone Tracy was the strongest wind speed that had been recorded by weather station up to that time within Australia. My name is Matthew Mason. I'm a senior lecturer within the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Queensland. But the the issue we had with Cyclone Tracy was it was a very strong event and it made a direct hit on a very populated centre. Hundreds of people were injured. Over 70 people were killed. There's been rumours ever since that the number was actually much higher, but that's the number that we know, about 70 people. So my name is Stephen Farham. I'm a senior lecturer in history at Charles Darwin University. 10,000 houses were either partly or completely destroyed and over 90% of the population was made homeless. But as John Hamner, Emeritus Professor at RMIT and a Senior Scientific Advisor at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Vienna explains, it wasn't just housing. Almost all the infrastructure in Darwin was destroyed or damaged all the street infrastructure, such as electricity, the water treatment plant, sewage plant, they were all destroyed in terms of the electricity and phone distribution networks were completely wiped out. The plants operating water supply and sewage were also knocked out, but they weren't, the actual underground infrastructure wasn't destroyed. But the above ground infrastructure, the airport, the pile of jumbled up aircraft and damaged buildings, that all had to be cleared. The hospital was significantly damaged. Parts of the hospital building were quite badly damaged and the nurses' quarters, it might well be that today we would say, oh, we can't use them until they've been assessed, but they continued to function, the hospital continued to function normally despite that. 
but there was no electricity or radio for a few days. One big worry about Cyclone Tracy was that we felt that the people down south didn't know that we were in trouble, that they were enjoying Christmas quite unaware that we'd been wiped out. It wasn't until late in the afternoon we managed to get the first story through, and this was by using ship's radio and contacting Perth for the story to be sent through. It took almost four hours. In those days, we were completely dependent on landlines, and the phone exchanges were knocked out, and that meant there was no communication at all. The early morning ABC broadcast on Christmas Day said that Darwin had been hit by Cyclone Tracy. It was thought there were extensive damage and loss of life, but there was no word yet from the city. The local people tend to be there on site, and the people of the city immediately, even though it was Christmas Day, organised themselves. I'll just give an example, the a group of local residents took over a school building, which was relatively undamaged. Engineered structures were damaged, but they were still kind of functional. Took over this building and created a sort of a community centre, a focal point for people to come to and to get first aid treatment and food. And other people came to the centre and ferried more seriously injured people to the hospital and the few remaining vehicles. Some heavy equipment operators on their own initiative started to clear roads to the hospital and then various church and other NGO groups which were perhaps a lot more important in Australia's disaster response in those days started to also work with these spontaneous kind of groups that had set up refugee centres or community centres. There was a very strong local organisation actually which dominated the response in terms of looking after people's immediate needs as well as rescue and medical first aid and medical treatments. Despite the delay in communications, within hours, a disaster recovery effort was underway. Darwin in 1974 was controlled by the federal government and the National Disaster Organisation, which had recently been created by the Whitlam government, swung into action. It was late on Christmas Day before the rest of the nation realised the magnitude of the disaster. The armed services responded immediately on orders from the Natural Disasters Organisation. Its chief, Major General Stretton, flew to Darwin to take charge. The Air Force began a massive airlift. The Army flew in engineers and signallers. And in Sydney, the Navy readied for sea. It's a certain special case because it was a Commonwealth territory. So it was a Commonwealth government responsibility. If it had happened in... Queensland, for example, there would have been essentially a state responsibility then. People of Darwin, this is General Alan Stretton, the civilian chief of the Natural Disasters Organisation. The Whitlam government in February 1974 had set up what they called the National Disasters Organisation and it was anticipating anything that could happen anywhere. And within six months, or perhaps a little longer, they had to use it to help Darwin. I'm Bill Bunbury. I'm currently an adjunct professor at Murdoch University. I work with Hindsight between 1969 and 2007. I also work for Encounter. Whitlam was actually away in Europe when it happened, but he came back straight away. He sent Major General Alan Stretton up to deal with it, who had a plan, knew how to deal with it, and work started immediately to help people who get out of Darwin who needed to and bring in repairs and supplies to get the town functional again. Now, today, we are trying to move out of Darwin 6,000 people in the largest 
airlift ever attempted in one day by Australia in either peace or war. Over 40,000 people had been made homeless. There was concerns because there was no sanitation that the disease might spread. And he just thought, well, the city can't look after all of these homeless people because they set up emergency accommodation and tried to get food and medicines and all these things to people. But he decided that the thing to do would be to get them out of Darwin and get them somewhere else safe where they can be looked after there. He started organising aircraft and he asked for any aircraft possible that could come into Darwin to come into Darwin and start taking people away. That was mainly done within first four or five days, he got out about 30,000 people. The decision to thin out the population of Darwin led to the biggest civilian airlift in Australia's history. Among the first out were the injured. The vanguard of some 19,500 people brought south in the airlift, which was at full pressure for almost a week. At Sydney's Kingsford Smith Airport and airports in other capitals, voluntary organisations rallied behind the state emergency services. On one day, 40 flights were made from Darwin by military aircraft and jet airliners of Qantas and domestic commercial airlines. At the peak of the airlift, a Qantas jumbo flew out with 674 refugees. It was a world record for a civilian airlift. Stratton was right. You couldn't cope with that number of people who needed feeding, who needed water, who needed all kinds of things. And by personal agreement, men and women decided what to do. If the woman wanted to stay with the husband, there was nothing to stop her. But anyone who wanted to leave could. And there were reception areas set up all over Australia to receive them. If you wanted to go to Brisbane or Adelaide or Perth or Melbourne or Sydney, the Red Cross was waiting there to take your details, ensure that your, your husband, that you'd arrive safely and find you, if possible, accommodation or let people know that uh, relatives would look after you. There was a very good back-end reaction from the states. They, they contributed enormously to helping people get out of Darwin when they needed to. And did that evacuation process actually lead to its own sort of complications in terms of did a large number of those people actually come back to Darwin? Well, it's an interesting question. I talked to a lot of the people who had come back and I also talked to people who hadn't, but the majority said where we stayed together, a man and wife, and worked together, A, the relationship survived and also it probably improved and sometimes not in every case, women who came back to a marriage after being away found that the relationship wasn't working. They'd grown apart. There'd been a long distance and time between them. And some of those marriages failed. There has been a reassessment. And some people are saying, oh, it was a mistake to evacuate all of those people there. And it would have contributed to their trauma. And they would have been better if they'd have stayed in Darwin. And there would have been more community cohesion if they'd all been involved in the rebuilding at the time. As it was, it was several months before people were allowed to return to Darwin. And there were people clamouring to come back in. But there was over for half of those people never came back to Darwin again. You're listening to Rear Vision. I'm Annabel Quince. We're looking at the civilian and government response to one of Australia's worst natural disasters, Cyclone Tracy, which hit Darwin in the early morning of Christmas Day, 1974. The Prime Minister at the time was Gough Whitlam, and he was overseas. But his deputy, Jim Cairns, arrived in Darwin on Boxing Day. Three days later, the 28th of December, Whitlam also arrived in Darwin. 
The Prime Minister, Mr Whitlam, interrupted his overseas tour to visit Darwin. My mind inevitably went back to the early 1940s when I first saw this city, not very long after it had been bombed by the Japanese. And it's heartbreaking to see that all the effort that's been made over a whole generation has been destroyed. Whitlam was overseas at the time. He was in Europe for work purposes when Cyclone Tracy destroyed Darwin Christmas Day 1974. Dr Jim Cairns was Deputy Prime Minister and Acting Prime Minister in Whitlam's absence. So he went to Darwin. It took a little while for it to become clear whether Whitlam would return or not. Even though Cairns occupied the office of Prime Minister in Whitlam's absence, certainly some journalists felt that Whitlam as Prime Minister should come home. My name is Dr Rose Williamson. I'm Senior Lecturer in the School of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at the University of New England, and I'm an Honorary Senior Lecturer in the Humanities Research Centre at the Australian National University. Whitlam did send a message from Europe and that was printed in newspapers. He said he was horrified by what had happened, by the, the loss of life, by the destruction, and he promised a determined and unremitting effort to rebuild your city and relieve suffering. So he was speaking directly to the people of Darwin. He expressed his profound shock, his heartfelt sympathy, but it wasn't clear for a few days whether he would be back or not. And there was some controversy around this. He did arrive back on the 28th of December and he went to Darwin to inspect the damage. Now, the great thing I have to say to the people of Darwin is that the Australian government is determined to see that Darwin is rebuilt and restored and the citizens of Darwin are rehabilitated and returned. Whitlam established a rehabilitation commission, which was charged not just with rebuilding Darwin, but rebuilding it in a way to withstand any future cyclones. Most of the buildings, the public buildings that the Australian people have invested here, can be fairly readily restored. The private dwellings have proved unsuitable for this locality. Much of the building stock within Darwin was either owned by the government or built by the government and then sold to private buyers. So much of the responsibility for all of the building stock within Darwin was the, the federal government and their agencies. But that said, I mean, very quickly within the, a couple of days after the event, there was a sort of a body developed to go through and inspect the damage and determine why the type of damage had occurred. And within, I think it was within five days, there was what was known as the Darwin Reconstruction Commission developed and that they were mandated to go through and say, look at all the buildings that were damaged and determine why that had occurred and then try to come up with solutions for how they could do it. And there was a very strong push from the federal government to say, well, we're not going to build back until we can determine what has caused this so that we can make sure that this doesn't happen again. 
the National Disasters Organization has been looking at the methods of construction in similar communities in similar localities such as Florida. So therefore we can be fairly confident that without much delay the Australian government can help the people of Darwin to secure proper housing, appropriate housing in this gateway city. So once they did that, once they got in and assessed, what were the key things they found and what did it mean in terms of rebuilding Darwin? How did it change the way Darwin houses were actually built? Up to that time, there was very little engineering, direct engineering input into the design of housing. That's not to say there was no engineering input because some concepts from engineering obviously flow through into how builders build their houses, but there were no strict guidelines on how to do it. So within a month of Cyclone Tracy, the Darwin Area Building Code had been drafted. So this was a new set of guidelines for how to build housing in Darwin. And these were based on information that that was gained after the damage assessments, testing that was done in engineering laboratories to test new solutions. And there was also the requirement that any house being built had to be assessed by an engineer. So every new home being built had an assessment done by an engineer, but that was also made a a more tractable job because the the federal government controlled 40% of the housing within Darwin and would do many of them in the same sort of design. So they had sort of a limited number of designs that an engineer would assess. Was the government also helped in this process by the fact that most of Darwin's residents had been evacuated and therefore the government actually had the time and the space to assess the damage? The evacuation was a big part of why a lot of what happened in Darwin was able to happen because the fact that people were so far away allowed the engineers to get in and assess the buildings, but also gave them some time to come up with the solutions which could be implemented when reconstructing the buildings. And the important thing with what happened in Darwin was that they mandated much of that building back better. And what happens now is that you might come up with a solution for how you can reduce the impact, but it's often not mandated that it has to be done. It's just, well, these are the solutions you could implement. Please go ahead and do it. But there's no enforcement of it or no requirement to do it. And where we kind of fall down sometimes now is we it's much better than it was kind of back in Tracy because we have insurance cover that covers a lot of this. But the fact that you have this ready access to money to rebuild, a lot can get done quickly. So you can get back into a house quicker. But quite often that gets done in exactly the same way as it was built before. If we just build back how things were, the same thing will continue to happen again and again. The fact that there was a really determined attempt, large successful attempt to ensure that the reconstructed city would, to use your expression, was built back better, and it was built back in a way that made it resistant, I'm not saying it was proof, but resistant to a similar event. That's, I think, a real achievement. So did we learn from that experience in Darwin? Jo Groves thought lifting her South Lismore home with the support of a state government grant would prevent a repeat of the inundation she experienced in the 2017 floods. 
and we raised it to the maximum height that Lismore City Council would let us raise it to. You can see by the colour of the grout where the water's come to. But it didn't work. The cases of Brisbane and Lismore, both areas are well-known flood areas. Most of the buildings, and not necessarily every building, but most of the ones that were flooded had been flooded before. And the same sort of damage occurred last time as it did this time. So if things are built back exactly how they were before, we will see it again. We focused on Lismore. We could take Brisbane, the 74 flood. They built Wyvernhoe Dam was constructed to reduce the flood risk to the city, but no planning or zoning was done. Lismore, there was after the 50s flood, an interdepartmental committee, which had actually been set up in the 40s, to look at flooding in northern part of the state. It made a range of recommendations in its 1958 report, most of which were actually implemented about the levee system and pumping station in Lismore and so on. But its recommendations on zoning were not implemented. That is something that we still struggle with in much of Australia. Unless there are changes to the way we think about how we build buildings and where we allow people to put their buildings, we either need to grow to accept that these are the types of damages that will happen and the people that live there have to get used to dealing with it, or we have to come up with some other solutions. And these are not necessarily going to be solutions that work for everyone. I mean, there may be people that live in highly bushfire-prone areas or highly flood-prone areas that need to be told, you can't rebuild there, you have to go somewhere else. And either land swap programs or buyback schemes are ways these can be done, but these tend to be very expensive solutions. There's not always the funds and there's not always the designation of who should actually be paying for this. Is this a local government problem? Is it a state government problem? Is it a federal government problem? Where does the money come from? And in many areas, there's quite a number of these homes that realistically probably should be either bought back or land swaps. But how to fund that is a very difficult question. But I think one that that is very worthwhile discussing openly. The other really major issue that I think happened in Darwin is the way that emergent civil society, emergent response to the disaster in terms of collective response to support each other and support their own families and to support the immediate needs of their communities occurred without being blocked or undermined in any way. And it appeared from what the work we've done is that groups worked either in an integrated way or in parallel with some liaison and that worked very effectively. It's not to say it wasn't without its problems and issues, but it meant that you could say, I think, that the whole of society's resources, the military, the Northern Territory official system, the people and all the expertise and resources that they have as individuals and communities, all mobilised to support the community in the immediate aftermath of disaster in a way that we just seem to struggle with a bit now. So that, I think, we can characterise as a whole-of-society response. There's a lot of rhetoric now about resilience and whole-of-society response from government, but I feel when they use the expression whole-of-society, what they really mean is whole-of-government. And civil society is, is somehow considered to be involved more by being compliant and told what to do and not to. And I think we see a bit of this in, in the Northern Rivers and uh, there's a bit of pushback. We should think about how we can 
redo this. If we are really serious, and the Australian government and state governments are all appear to be really serious about better resilient communities, disaster resilient communities, this requires citizens and their representatives to be involved in all the planning and to have some power. And a couple of reviews by the Comrie Review into the Black Saturday Royal Commission implementation, he made the recommendation on resilience, that if we want resilience, government agencies are going to have to give up some of their power to civil society. And this is a big challenge for us. I think we're heading in the other direction. But it's pretty clear if we're going to face more of these major events that we need a genuine whole of society approach. Tonight, a national emergency declared. The Prime Minister in Lismore pressed about why help wasn't sent sooner. I absolutely understand the frustration. I understand the anger. I understand the disappointment. Since the floods hit last week, many residents have been angered by the initial response, arguing the deployment of the Defence Force was too slow. We don't have those resources which has ADF just waiting around the corner. Scott Morrison says the National Recovery and Resilience Agency will now spend tens of millions of dollars on a flood mitigation plan for Lismore. The city was initially excluded from the priority list despite being in a high flood zone. I think timing is really important and the criticism he's faced recently has been focused on what's been called the sluggish or slow response. And I think just harking back to Cyclone Tracy, it was 1974. The communication technologies were not what we have today. Opportunities for travel were perhaps less sophisticated, but the response was really swift. So you had Alan Stretton, the head of the Natural Disasters Organisation, going there straight away, along with was Rex Patterson, the Commonwealth Minister for the Northern Territory. And Stretton was there almost from day one on the ground and doing things quickly and visibly. So I think that people could see that something was happening and it was happening quickly. Of course, there were criticisms of the response, but something was happening. And I think that's been the problem this time, certainly with the floods, that it just seems to have taken the government a while to get warmed up on this. And people have been upset by that because there are families not able to give their kids fresh drinking water and, and the days are just rolling by. In these situations, the, the crisis management experts tell us that people need two things. You need practical help and information. So you need to know what's going on, what you need to do, what you need to avoid doing, all of those things that will keep you safe. You also need reassurance that people will rally around and that there is hope for the future. You need those things quickly. I think perhaps for whatever reason, the timing and the importance of the immediacy of the response has not been given the priority that it needed to be given this time. Let's finish back in Darwin and see how it's coped with subsequent cyclones. We had just a few years ago now Cyclone Marcos here. By all accounts, that is the strongest cyclone we've had since Cyclone Tracy. And that cyclone in 2018 
it led to massive destruction. Trees were down, hundreds and hundreds of trees came down, large trees. Some fell on buildings, but there wasn't any damage of buildings or major structural damage caused just by the wind itself. And that has to be because the buildings are just so much stronger now. They're built in a way that they're not going to just pick up and fly away or the roofs aren't going to flip off. And in that cyclone, 26,000 homes were left without power, mine included at the time, but no one was killed and no one was even reported to have been seriously injured. Compare it to Cyclone Tracy, where 70 people were killed and hundreds of people were injured. You know, it's quite a difference. Stephen Farham from Charles Darwin University. My other guests... Matthew Mason from the University of Queensland, John Hamner from RMIT in Melbourne, Bill Bunbury, author of Cyclone Tracy, Picking Up the Pieces, and Rose Williamson from the University of New England. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on ABC Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.